Well, with uh, events in my life this week, Josh has been kind to cover. So, without further ado, come on up. How about a hand up? It's awful. <laughs> I didn't know you were going to be here, so this is worse. Uh, I've already got about five questions. Uh, <laughs> the ones that I've asked earlier, you just wrote them down. Yeah, right. Throw them right back at me. Um, well, hey, I'm uh, Josh Warren. Uh, if you don't know me, I'm a former former middle school Bible teacher. So um, I don't know what level of discourse you're expecting, but um, that's it. Thirteen is about where I max out. So I apologize. Uh, currently, uh, I'm working for the Grace Institute with Will. So um, he's helping me a little bit in communicating with adults, but I'm a slow learner. Um, so when Chris asked me to talk, I asked, you know, what you guys were doing. And he said, you're in Daniel. I was like, okay, good. And so, um, I've, you know, I've seen the Veggie Tales. I know what Daniel's about. Uh, and... Um, so instead of just going over, what I'm assuming is what you're doing. That's how I taught Daniel. <laughs> it's like, all right, here we go to Lion's Den. But it's like a carrot or something. I don't know. Um, we're going to do something else. And so Daniel actually takes place um, in exile. And exile is one of my favorite, probably my, I think it's the number one theme that's under uh, discussed um, in, I guess, my Christian circles. And so this, I guess, lesson is less like about a specific text and more like about a specific concept or time period. Um, so hopefully it'll make sense, but it, it'll give, I guess, maybe some better uh, framework for when you're going through Daniel. You'll kind of understand where he is and where Israel is there. So if you have your Bibles, um, you can, if you would, open them to Deuteronomy 28. We're actually going to go back near the beginning. Um and so the way that I want to try to tackle this topic today is I want to talk about where ex- exile comes from, uh, how did it start, and then um, what actually happens in the middle of it, so kind of where you are with Daniel, and then the future. So what, do, does, what importance does exile have, I guess, after exile? Uh, once again, confusing. Uh, but we'll, we'll try to get into it. So in Deuteronomy 28, um, Deuteronomy is this book where Israel is about to go or the nation of Israel or the Jewish people. If you've seen the 10 commandments, they go and they do all the stuff. Charlton Heston leads them out of Egypt. Um, sorry, I'm sure there's, it's based on a book from what I hear. And so they go, uh, up into this promised land and, um, Moses is not allowed to go, and so you get this book of Deuteronomy. Um, Deuteronomy is repeating the law, so um, I think it means second law. I think that's right. I read that somewhere as well. And so they're repeating the law before they go in and take the land, the promised land that was promised to Abraham back in the day. And so you get, though, this kind of back and forth. So in Deuteronomy 28, verse 1, it says, And if you, Israel... Faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today. The Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. It's a pretty clear blessing. So obey God. You're going to be better than everybody else. 
And so going back to the promise to Abraham. So obey, you get blessing. But um, we're going to skip to verse 15. This is kind of the beginning of the other section. It says, but if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all of these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. And then you get these curses kind of following. Uh, there's a bunch of weird ones, um, but there's one specific that I just want to talk about. So in verse 36, kind of going forward a little more, uh, it says, The Lord will bring you and your king, whom you set over you, to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, and you shall become a horror, a proverb, and a byword among all the peoples where the Lord will lead you away. So, very depressing. Sorry, this is going to be kind of a depressing topic. Uh, so, um, what they would do, or what Israel would do when they go into the promised land, uh, in order to remind them of these blessings and curses, is, and I think you still go there today, um, if you go on a tour of Israel, they'll still take you. There's these two mountains, Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. And on Mount Gerizim, half of the tribes of Israel would go on one, and they would shout the blessings here in Deuteronomy to the other people. And other people would get on Mount Ebal, and they would shout uh, the curses of the covenant to each other. And so you get these um, kind of combating uh, blessings and curses. So there's a bunch of curses. There's like no children, poor produce. There's drought, famine. Uh, the army will lose to an invading army, something like that. You'll have a re repeat of the plagues of Egypt, but that'll happen to Israel. And so all of these things are, you know, consequences. So if you disobey, all these bad things, or these bad things could happen to you. Um, but the ultimate one is exile. Exile is the worst thing that can happen. You can be kicked out of the promised land. So God promises the land to Abraham. The people are kicked out and then they're dispersed and they serve other gods. So really, really bad curse, the ultimate kind of curse. So this is where, uh, this is where it starts, the promise. This could happen. And so if you know anything about the Bible or the history of Israel, they're pretty bad all the way through. Um, it's really hard to find where they've succeeded. So, like judges, right, right out of the gate, they kind of, after they conquered the land, the people rebel, or the people kind of turn away from God, Philistines or somebody come in, and then they're conquered. Uh, they get a king later on, and the kings are almost all bad. You have like three, maybe four good kings in these, in like the thousand years uh, of Israel's history. And so, they're not good. But what this does, but you don't get just this like long history of disobedience. You get all of these warnings. So like in Judges, you get actual judges. So like Gideon or Samson stuff. All of these, you get these people who show up on the scene that are kind of indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And they give a warning to the people. They're like, hey, knuckleheads, you've been disobeying. Remember all that stuff that you said you weren't going to do? You're doing it. And so these are, this is punishment for it. And so... God is going to deliver you, and now you can live faithfully. And they, But it keeps repeating. You get prophets later on. When you get kings, prophets show up, and they tell the king, hey, you need to be a good leader, lead people toward righteousness. Um, usually the king disagrees or tries to kill the prophet. So for those that are prophets, not a great job. Um, but they um, some do <laughs> repent. Very few repent, but some do. And, um, and so things kind of get better for a little bit. Uh, what this, uh, one of my <coughs> seminary professors, my Old Testament seminary professor, said that the Old Testament is about 
the long nose of God is what she said. Uh, if you read in the Old Testament, evidently, in Hebrew, which I don't know. So this is, I'm just going with what somebody else told me. So this is third-hand information. But uh, if you ever see slow to anger, like God is slow to anger, it doesn't say that in Hebrew. It says um, that God has a long nose is what the idea is. Um, and the long nose of God means it takes uh, a really long time for his nose to get red. Uh, and so God is very patient. He doesn't get angry and get beat red. The end of his nose get beat red is the idea. And so you get this kind of colloquialism, um, which talks about the patience of God. So to me, like the major theme in the Old Testament about God is he's really patient with disobedient people. Um, and so you get this warning in 1400 BC in Deuteronomy, and then we're kind of skipping to this uh, this time when this alt- when God is running out of warnings, basically. Uh, and so that's where uh, we are in Daniel. So um, <clears throat> if you know anything about Israel's history, you get King Saul. He's like not, he's good at the beginning. He's not great. After him is King David, really good guy. Um, not perfect, but a really good guy. You get Solomon, really smart guy, builds a temple, and um, but he has a bunch of wives and concubines, which is fun to explain to a 13-year-old what his concubine is. Um, so he has 700 of them. It's great. Um, so, I don't know. They're just friends. He had a lot of friends who were women. I don't know. Uh, so Solomon built his women friends uh, temples for their gods because there are all these foreign women. And so he's really good at building temples. He builds one to Yahweh that's like a wonder of the ancient world, but he also builds these other ones for his other wives and concubines. And, uh, and so after that, the kingdom splits. And so you get Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Um, and this is most of Israel's history, actually, is in like Chronicles and Kings, those little books that we don't like to read. Um, and so in Israel, in the northern kingdom of Israel, they're all bad. You can, if you read it and you read about a king, that you can assume they're going to be bad. Uh, so like Ahab um, and Elijah, if you know that kind of stuff, um, they're, they kill prophets, they kill like kids, like infant sacrifice, all this stuff. And there's all these warnings too. Um, it's just a terrible, terrible time. But they're not all, it's not always like super evil and bad things. Sometimes they're really wealthy uh, and so when I say bad, don't assume that it's like a poverty-stricken time. Uh, sometimes they're very, very wealthy. And so prophets have to show up and say, hey, stop basically worshiping your wealth and that kind of stuff. And at the, at the expense of the poor, a lot of the prophets, the minor prophets like Amos and stuff, are about that. Um, but they're pretty much always bad. So in the north, they're always bad. And so you get this nation, Assyria, uh, or Nineveh is the capital, so if you know the Jonah story. Um, Assyria comes down and destroys. And Assyria is not good. They're not like a godly country. Um, God takes this really evil country and destroys his country or his nation, part of his nation, that's now evil. So there's still kind of hope because you've got um, this country Judah, you've got Jerusalem, you've got the temple, like that's all still going. Nobody's really worshiping in it, but it's still okay. Um, so there's still this glimmer of hope for the Israelites, but this is a very small um, section. It would be like if all of the hope of redemption relied in like an area the size of Mississippi or something. That's how big. Judah's not big. <laughs> it's just a small little place in the world. Um, eventually, 
Uh, they're not good either. They get a couple of good kings, like Josiah and Hezekiah. But ultimately, Babylon, this other great nation, has risen up. They conquer Syria, and then they go in, and they just wipe out um, Jerusalem. And so then they take people out. And so it's not like they just wipe them out and kill everybody. They wipe them out and then displace them. Um, and so this is what you get in Daniel. So this is where you guys are in Daniel. So Daniel's part of this group of exiles. He's kind of the elite um, he was probably the son of a ruler, or kind of the aristocracy, but they bring them out. And so this is where, this is the ultimate kind of curse that's put on God's people. And so the questions that are raised uh, here are really, I think, interesting questions. And so you get stuff like, so what do you do? And I'll let you guys think through this. But what do you do if you're a Jew and you are in exile? Like, how do you worship? Like, for us, we're like, we just worship where we are. We just pray and read our Bible. They don't have Bibles. They don't really feel like they can necessarily, they can kind of pray, but they go through, you know, you go to a priest, you make sacrifices, right? You have sins you got to make sacrifices for, but you can only do that at the temple, and people can't do that. Like, it's absurd to think that a normal person, a normal Jew, could go and make their own sacrifices. They can't do that. They have to go to a priest, but a priest only does that at the temple, there's no temple. It's been destroyed. So now you've got the sin, right? And you're not fixing it because you can't make sacrifices because there's no temple to make sacrifices. You don't have priests anymore. Um, and so <clears throat> for Jews, especially in the Old Testament, God is very locational, uh, which is another weird thing for us. So if you want to know where the presence of God is in the Old Testament, a Jew could point and tell you. <laughs> He's like... He's in the temple. We're in the temple. In the most holy place. We're in the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant is. Like, right? They can point to a specific geographical location on earth. Now, no, I don't, I don't know. And so, and we see this even to the extent today where if you're Jewish, there's still the most holy place you can go to is the western wall of the old temple. And then the wailing wall is what it's called. And then you can go make prayers there. And that's the closest, most holy place a Jew can get on earth. So it's still, in their mind, this very locational idea that's kind of foreign, I think, to Christians. And so, but that's been done away with. It's been obliterated. God was there, but obviously God has left them. So what do you do if you, if your God has abandoned you for your, I mean, and it's your fault. So he's abandoned you. It's because of your sin. Now what? Like, how do you live your life? And this is where I like, that's why I like Daniel and these guys, because they're really wrestling with these things. And for me, as a Christian, these are not foreign themes to me. Um, what do I do when I feel like my sin has estranged me from God, too? Um, I get in those places, even still, um, as a former middle school Bible teacher, uh, I still feel that estrangement. Um, from God because of sin. So is my experience this same experience? Um, and how do they handle that? And Daniel, we see, is faithful. Um, and so he's been, he's a really, he's a good example uh, of this. But what does this mean? Is God done with, with his people, with Israel? And so I'll steal a little bit of your thunder. No, 
he's not. <laughs> um, uh, and this will show up especially in Daniel uh, 9 later on when you get, um, have fun teaching that stuff. That stuff's so weird. Uh, <laughs> anyway, I'll teach the easy stuff, the history stuff. Uh, so they eventually um, come out uh, of that. And so there's this book, Ezra, that everybody's read. Um, it's one of the more popular books. You know Ezra. Uh, can't, can't get enough. Um, <clears throat> Ezra is a book about them leaving exile. There's a guy, Cyrus, he's a big deal. Uh, and he says, hey, Jews, you can go back to Jerusalem, build your homes and your temple and stuff. And so they go. Uh, they go back, and there's a bunch of weird stuff that happens. But they eventually go back and, and rebuild the temple. Um, it's not great because you got a bunch of refugees building a temple like Solomon built it before. Like David got all the stuff. It's like the two kind of richest, most successful kings in, his, in Israel's history building a temple. And then it's like this riffraff comes in. It's like, well, we'll fix it. Like, well, that's cute. And so, uh, so they build it and people are still kind of sad because it's not the same. Um, that's how they live. They get, you get this whole, um, they, they start people are fighting them still. They don't want them to have this identity. They still fight for their temple. Um, This is in between the Old and New Testament now. And uh, you get the Maccabees, if you refer to them. Um, This one guy comes in, he sacrifices pigs in the most holy place, in the Holy of Holies. Um, And Antiochus IV Epiphanes, as we... (laughs) uh, I don't know, they have weird names back then. They're not American. And uh, we would never do this. And so... The temple's now unclean, and so now what do you do? And so you get the Maccabees go in, they clean it up. Um, so you get Hanukkah um, celebrating that. And so there's all this fighting about this temple. Um, and so you have, they have a temple, before, like right, so right before Jesus shows up, they have a temple. Herod the Great um, rebuilds it, and it's really nice. He does a very good job, and in my opinion. And so you get this really nice temple. And so, but things are okay but there's no, like, Israel. There's kind of Israel as a nation, but it's this Rome, Greek or Roman, we're allowing you to rule, right? They're not in charge at all. They have no sovereignty over their own nation. They can kind of do what they want in worship, and that's about it, as long as it doesn't offend, you know, the rulers in charge. And so um, when you get to the New Testament, one of the questions that Bible scholars ask is, is... Do Jews still think they're in exile? Does it end when they go back in Ezra? Like when Cyrus says, you guys can go back. Is that when the exile's over? Or is it still on? And the argument is, is Jews still probably think during Jesus' time that they're still in exile, right? It's this kind of, yeah, a little, like we can still go to the temple, but things aren't like they were. Like when Solomon builds a temple, God's spirit goes in. If you read that story, it's great. And all the priests have to run out of the temple because God's presence goes in as a cloud and they're all bailing out. And so when they rebuild the temple, like uh, when Ez- in Ezra's day, that never happens. God's presence never goes in. There's no Ark of the Covenant or anything like that. Um, Indiana Jones found it later, so if you want to see that documentary, it's in a <laughs> warehouse in Nevada. But, um, but for them, it's not the same. It's very different, but very similar. Um, but not quite there. And so when Jesus shows up, I think one of the things, one of the major themes in understanding Jesus is Jesus is there to free Israel from exile. And they really think that, and kind of the way I've been talking is this political exile a little bit, right? 
And so you've got, you know, Babylon or Assyria, Babylon, uh, Persia, Greece, and Rome. And so G and, and all the, his disciples even think that he's going to free them from Rome. He's like, yes, exile's over. You're going to kick Rome out. And now we can be the country that God made us to be way back in the promise to Abraham and in Deuteronomy that we read about and all these blessings and curses. We're going to go back to that. And Jesus is like, yeah, no, he is going to free them from exile, but they're thinking too small. They're thinking of just political exile. And Jesus is not concerned with politics in that sense. He's concerned with the world and the soul and death and things that we have no control over. Um, so what does this, so what does this mean for, my, for us? I think it means a few things, um, looking at the Old Testament and how Jesus handles it, if Jesus does this. Um, we don't live in covenant curse. So this Mount Ebal, Mount Gerizim, shouting curses and blessings at each other, um, the Bible is pretty clear that Jesus became a curse for us. And so if you put your faith in him, he becomes your covenant. He takes the covenant curse on himself. And so there's just no yelling of covenant curse because Jesus bore all of that on himself. He, Jesus, one of his themes, is he represents Israel. And he says all of the things they couldn't do, right? All of the long suffering of God throughout the Old Testament, Jesus is like, I'll do it. Watch. Israel, the nation couldn't do it. I'll be the nation. I'll be the representative of the Israelite nation. And he does it perfectly. And he still gets all of the curses put on himself. No blessings, just curses. And so because of that, the blessings are still there. Um, and that means we don't have to fear exile. So is God going to do to me what he did to them? Is, am I going to be like Daniel? Is he going to take me out of America, obviously, the nation of Israel is the same thing as America. Just kidding. Um, hopefully, got that joke. Oh, gosh. Uh, <laughs> um, but do I have to worry about turning so far from God that he is, he's done with me? He's going to leave me, and I'm going to have no God and no identity as a believer. Now I'm just a former believer in Yahweh. Um, is that a fear? No, I don't have to do that. Jesus took estrangement from God, too. He took curses, and he took estrangement. He's already done that. Um, he's my representative. Um, God's faithfulness, this is my favorite theme of the Old Testament. God's faithfulness doesn't depend on my faithfulness. Um, it, had to it had to be terrible. <clears throat> but now I don't have to worry about that. If it all depends on Jesus, it all depends on Jesus. It really does. Um, and so... I don't have to respond based on fear of curse or hope of blessing. I respond out of love um, because it's this relationship. Um, there's a lot of stuff in here about how you're going to get a new heart that I've skipped over. Um, but in the exile, they're promised. Things aren't working out. And the problem isn't the law necessarily, and it's not with the way that you're trying. It's with your heart. And so if you're, Jesus promises he's going to give you a new heart. Um, later on. And so now I think for us, what we can finally do is we can now be what we, Abraham was ultimately told he was going to be. We can now be a blessing to the nations instead of a curse. If you noticed in the text that we read, um, he says, you're going to be a byword, a proverb. It's like, don't be like Israel because they thought they were too big. And then now they're nothing. Um, now we don't, we don't have to worry about that because now we're not this one tiny nation. Now we're this insignificant group of people that God is going to carry out um, 
the gospel or the good news of the kingdom throughout the world. And so now we can finally do what Israel couldn't do. Now we can be a blessing to all the nations, not in this little corner of the Middle East, but um, through all the world. So um, let me pray and we'll stop. Father, thank you for who you are um, and your faithfulness to your people, uh, even though we have a long history of unfaithfulness to you. Uh, Thank you for your son Jesus and what he's done. I ask that uh, we hopefully not take it for granted, uh, but that we reflect on uh, his goodness um, and everything that he went through um, for the sake of of us, for his love, uh, and that we would reflect that love uh, in the world. Uh, Thank you for everything, and I ask that you would um, help us to love one another well because you've loved us well. I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, Do you guys have questions? I don't know. What time do we get out? You can take questions for a few minutes. All right. 10, 10, 12 minutes. Okay. Um, Do you guys have questions? I don't. You're welcome to ask anything. I didn't really set it up for, like, discussion. My bad. So. Yes. All right. Perfect. Uh-huh. So, so we're going to take it down. Mm-hmm. And I, my apologies if this is something that I picked up on, but it's just a random question. So you were talking about how the pigs were sacrificed mm-hmm. um, and that it made the holy place unclean. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Does that have anything to do with the Jewish not eating pork? Yes, because they're unclean animals, right? Okay. So <coughs> pigs are unclean. You're not. They shouldn't be kind of anywhere near them. Okay. And so this jerk, as the as the history books tell us, jerk. And you know, like this dude comes in, he knows that. And so in order to show his dominance over the Jews, and because of their they're starting all these little rebellions, he comes in and sacrifices them there, which is the ultimate. It's called the um, it abomination of desolation. I just went, I don't think it's abomination, is it? Abomination. Abom- thank you. I'm like, that's not a word. Okay, yeah. Prior to no, you, right? none of this. Right. All the way back in Deuteronomy, they're like, eh. Pig, yeah, pigs are out. Sorry. Like, yeah. I don't I don't care about it's Texas barbecue, not Memphis barbecue. That's the rules. <laughs> so to whom was he making the sacrifice uh, it was I think it was not it might have it was probably to his God if he even cared. But it was more like, you know, a, yeah, a middle finger to the Jews, more so than like a worship act to his God. Um, it's probably like a celebration of war victory. More. Who was that? What nation was he from? I think he's Greece. So after Alexander the Great, he's kind of one of the generals when they're all fighting, I think. Was he struck down for no. being in the Holy Land? No. Nope. But you said the Spirit of God was never in that. Kind of, yeah. When they rebuild, it's it's not the same. Like they um, in Ezra, they, they cry out because some people have heard of the glory of the former temple and they weep because it's it hasn't been re- restored to its former glory. Um, yeah. Do you think Jews today that care about these things mm-hmm. are, are not, not nominal but serious religious yeah. Jews are kind of living in exile? I mean, they, they think about themselves the same way. I think so. Uh, is it diaspora or diaspora? I can't ever. I never know. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Do you guys? You guys have probably seen the word. I don't. diaspora. Yeah. Okay. Diaspora. Thank Let's you. That. that sounds good. Uh, so. Yeah, I think that they see them see themselves as as that, and that's. I feel like they've kind of embraced that as a that's who they are, their identity a little bit, as they kind of go and assimilate, but are still separate. And everything they do is really longing for the temple yes, to be rebuilt. Very much that so. That is God's location, and they want 
this identity. It was the same as Daniel. Daniel was always looking back to Jerusalem. Right. He was wanting the temple. Praise, facing I Jerusalem. I want to go back. Yeah. I mean, you know, this is okay for now. This is where God has me, but I want to go back. If you go and see, um, so if you've seen Saving Private Run. Wait, no, sorry, Schindler's List. And so if you see, like, the, all the caskets are kind of above ground. They're kind of, it's kind of weird. Um, but they're all on the side of this mountain because it's right next to the holy temple, like where it was. And so the closer you are to the temple, the, the precedent you get in resurrection. And so, yeah, you have, so there's this like hierarchy of resurrection locationally based on that. And so even we went to, in Prague, they had like this, I think one of the, there was a stone there that was from the temple in Jerusalem or from the Mount or something. And so that was a big deal because they would be, it shows precedent in their resurrection because of their association with Jerusalem. Just kind of this crazy. This is important for us to get when we're, you know, some Jews don't care about any of this. They're just nominal and they're Jewish to them. It's just their Jew. It's their ethnicity. But there are those that like, an Orthodox synagogue or something like that where they really are concerned to serve God and even though they're wrong about some things, you know, but they this for our evangelism to know that the temple is so significant and and that Ephesians goes into this how there's a new temple in Christ. The foundation of the apostles and prophets were the stones you know, we studied that in Ephesians Uh 2 but we can say to them as offensive as this may sound on the front end your temple's not going to be rebuilt, and God is no longer locational, but he's building a temple right. in all nations, uh-huh. and uh, you can be a part of that in Christ. And your body's a temple, which sounds like the most heretical thing. Right. Obviously, you can, hopefully it sounds heretical. And if you get, reverent. Yeah, so very much so. Yeah, uh-huh. and that's, that's true. Right. Yeah, and it, so I think that, one, it helps... It helps me as I probably lean more to the irreverent side, right? I can say Yahweh and it's no big deal. Like they won't say or write that name. They won't even write in English the name God. Like you've seen little dash where they put the O. Um, and so I'm more toward the irreverent side. They're very reverent. And so I think that's helped. Even that outlook, I think I'm sympathetic toward that. I'm like that, I could use a little more yeah. reverence probably than irreverence personally. And they're trained to hate this message about Christ, but, I mean, truly, it is the fulfillment of all that they long for. And so, if God so sees fit to... And he's the key, right? Yeah. Christ, he's like, hey, he's one of yours. Yeah. You know? He's not, like, white guy. Yeah. <laughs> like me. Like, Jesus is a Jew. Yeah. Like, he's... You need. You should relate to him yeah. way better than me. Yeah. But so. still in the end, don't you think that they are still the chosen people? Whew. <laughs> oh, man. We got to go, right? <laughs> Three-year-old question. <laughs> no. That's about 13. <laughs> that is, yeah, that is a very, yeah, that's a very good question. A very, very good question. I would like to say, at least, uh, you know, Paul goes into this being a Jew, and he would say yes and no. I mean, no in the sense that not a lot of people say that and then think every Jew will be saved. But Paul is very clear that the only people that will be saved is those who put their faith in Christ. So, and then even Romans goes into the fact that there will be a, a coming in of the Jews, but that will look like faith in Christ. It won't look like being saved based on your national heritage or anything like that. 
So, um, it is not true that all Jews will be saved. It, and we ought to see them. If you look at the first century context, these are Jewish people, the first disciples, going out to Jews to call them to Christ. Like, hey, this isn't enough. You know, your circumcision isn't enough. None of this is enough. You have to put your faith in Christ to be saved. So uh, there is, that's a hard uh, transition to get your mind around. But ultimately, no, not all, Paul says it this way, not all Israel is Israel. And what he means is not all of national Israel is of the true Israel, which is, you're of the true Israel. Because circumcision is not just a matter of the flesh, but it's a matter of the heart, is what he says. So when you get saved and you truly put your faith in Christ, you have this circumcision in your heart, and you are now a member of the true Israel. So you could say, well, I don't think this is a good conversation starter with a Jewish neighbor or friend. <laughs> you are more Jewish than they are. Truly. Because you're Jew of the heart, uh, by the Spirit. So you're part of the true Israel. They're not even though they're part of national Israel. So you can be saved if you're a Jew, if you put your faith in Christ, but you, it's not automatic, just like it's not sure. automatic for anybody else. Mm -hmm. Not automatic to be more Jewish and be saved. Right. So then is it just more for those Jews who are saved and put their faith in Christ, I mean, essentially that means they're Christians, but the Jewish... Is it more just tradition and culture than it is anything related? I mean, there are Jewish customs and, and those types of things. Yeah, I'm not sure if there's advantages to being Jewish or not. I'm not sure. I mean, other than you're brought up in a thing that, you know, if you're not, if you're just a Gentile, like an atheist Gentile growing up with nothing, I would think it would be an advantage to be a Jew. You have all of the background and then Christ is there and it's like, oh, whereas you're like, nothing. It's a little harder. So I don't, but I don't know other than that. If there's, yeah. Disadvantages. If there's spiritual advantages. To me. Of like, they think, they thought all of this was getting them good with God. And Paul comes in and says, no. You know, he, even, he says he opposed Peter to his face because Peter, you know, was making circumcision more significant than it is. And it's harder for them in some sense yeah. that they like have to abandon this culture for this new culture in Christ. You don't have to abandon it. You can see it as fulfilled in Christ, yeah. but um, to realize that it's not getting you what you thought it was getting you. Mm -hmm. All right, so uh, through, through the years, I've taught some Jewish kids and whatnot, and um, it's always kind of interesting slash upsetting to see how you know, we raise our own kids and we tell them what we truths we believe and everything. So, of course, they're raised to believe certain truths. And, you know, I ask them, well, what are, you, what are you told about Jesus? And they're like, well, he came along and said we didn't have to obey the laws anymore. Um, and I was like, well, why, why is he not the Messiah? And, and they would reference things that I wasn't very familiar with. So I don't know if it comes out of the, the Talmud or right. what mm -hmm. here. But they would say things like, well, you know, when he was resurrected, all this, every, everyone was supposed to be resurrected, and that's not what happened. And, like, they said certain things that I wasn't privy to. Do you have any knowledge of... of so they believed he was resurrected. Well, they would say... Okay, if, that's probably not how they were, then everyone else should have been. 
If that if he's the true Messiah, then everybody's resurrected at the same. Yeah, that makes. I mean, that does make sense. If if that's kind of the argument, right? Like we expected it to be this way, and it wasn't this way, so it couldn't have been him. Did but you ask them why they didn't have to follow the law anymore after? No, you know what? Or why the law was fulfilled? I don't, I don't teach Bible. It wasn't exactly where I was supposed to be at the moment. You're like, well, the physics of resurrection are actually. <laughs> <laughs> so, and, and you know. I was caught off guard, felt fairly unprepared. Even, yeah. You know, and um, because all of a sudden they're referencing you know, <laughs> a missionary, you're like, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going alphabetically, but like yeah. English alphabet, so I haven't gotten to that one yet. Yeah. <laughs> so are they still waiting for the, if Jesus is not the Messiah? Yeah. They're still waiting. <laughs> the Orthodox ones are. Exile thing, they're still in exile. Yeah, I think so. Especially with no temple and so, stuff. I mean, it goes back to the sense of the faith that we covered, you know, a few, a few months ago. Like, what? What is it that, you know, they're, they're teaching their, their kids where they're shunning Jesus as the Messiah? Like, what, what are the things that they feel clearly show he wasn't? Uh, I don't know. I, th- I bet in my limited exposure that everybody's different, even in Jewish households, uh, of the importance or non-importance of Jesus. Um, and so, I mean, even Muslims believe Jesus is going to return you know, they, they love Jesus. He's a prophet. And so, which is maybe a good entry point, but, um, but obviously every, people kind of disagree on the significance of, of who, who he is. I think for me, it's just all about resurrection, like why he was here, what he was trying to do. And then, uh, his resurrection. Uh, if, <laughs> if you believe that, then I feel like that's pretty Big, that's a big leap that most people aren't willing to take. And then, like, so what does that mean then? What does the resurrection mean? Based on what he, that gives a lot of weight to his words and actions. So do you believe he could do all the stuff God could do? Which is partially what he was doing in his ministry, I think. And to Josh's point about exile, all of the promises of the Messiah were given in the context of exile. Or not of, all, or but... Coming up to, yeah. Or threat of, yeah. Israel coming back. It's going to get terrible, and then and it's going to get better because so of this guy. Probably yeah. Say, well, uh, <laughs> that's true. It hasn't gotten better. After he died, the temple was destroyed. Yeah, he did a great job. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, 40 years later. But to his point about it's not destroyed. just politics we're talking about. We're talking, you know, the whole nation of Israel served as a type, a, a foreshadowing of a greater reality. And, and there is a new and greater Israel that spans not just one nation, but all nations. You know, we are a, a chosen people, a holy nation that spans all nations. And uh, all that was prefigured in Israel has a greater fulfillment. So that's the challenge is, but everything for them is national Israel and political that way. And so we're talking about something very different. Um, but it is... Very similar. Yeah. And so I think, you know, but that's the, you know, the resurrection thing. Well, if he was truly the Messiah, well, everyone will be resurrected in Christ in his time. You know, there are good defenses to that, but it is the way that the Messiah fulfills is very different than what they had in mind. Mm-hmm. They thought he was going to come conquer Rome. And, you know, Rome lived on. Half of his ministry is clarifying. <laughs> He's like, no, it's it's not that. It's it's this. Yeah. Which, and usually better. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So... All right, we do have to go. All right. Thanks, guys. Good job. See you.